Welcome and thank you for listening to this message from Legacy Church New Braunfels. To connect with us, go to LegacyNB.com. Now enjoy this message from Pastor Jay Miller. Ms. B was talking about the, the next generation. I don't know if you noticed during altar ministry, there wasn't a planned altar ministry time. I guess Jesus planned it, but we didn't have it planned, okay? It was just making space for it. But our youth were beginning to pray for a lot of people that are up here on the front. And I'm telling you, there's a movement that's happening. Um, this last week, one of our, our, our families, their spiritual dad is a guy named Sam Brassfield. Samuel Brassfield's in his early 80s, right? 81, 82, yeah. And um, and in fact, Sam prophesied, I think the late 90s, a word that we've been living out for a while that talked about this I-35 corridor and what God would do with it. Long before New Braunfels reached, you know, 100,000 people, it was like 35,000 people whenever he prophesied that word, and we're starting to see this thing come out. Well, Papa Sam had released a word um, over the Williams family. It's talking specifically about Samuel Hunter, our drummer, but his, his, his given name is Samuel. And, and was talking about during our um, lock-in, they were telling him how there had been this encounter. And you, you guys, if you were here, you saw the testimony about 12, 13 of our kids that during free time at 4 in the morning in a lock-in said, can we just go worship? And they grabbed a cajon, and that, which is that little box there. So we're not talking about guitar strings or stuff like that. And they went to the hallway, and they just began to worship the Lord. And the Lord poured out into the hallway. They had these divine encounters, and it, and it lasted three hours, but to them it felt like 30 minutes. And Sam began to prophesy, talking about a move of God that they were a part of in 1970, which is a very significant date or year, in Oklahoma, where they had been called to go minister in a church. And um, that church had been windowed down because just some weird things that was going on, control and things like that. They had removed the Holy Spirit. It was an Assemblies of God church, but the Holy Spirit had been diminished in the midst of it, which is what religion always does. Religion tries to take over and remove the presence of God. And, um, and so they just began to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, as, and just to narrow down the word, basically they had the Sunday school that was going on at the same time, the main services going on. And, and uh, uh, Sam's wife, Nancy, was teaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But then the youth, the teenagers, just, it just caught the Holy Spirit, were baptized, moved with it, began to see incredible things happen, and then repentance started to hit their heart. They began to do reconciliation. They moved into the main service and said, why, why is this not happening in here? And, and then for three straight months, they experienced an outpouring where Sam said, I couldn't preach a message because all that God was doing was people were coming in, getting saved, healed, baptized, set free. Like every manifestation you talk about revival began to move, but it was through the youth. And Sam began to prophesy saying May 28th is the day of Jubilee and that there's going to be a movement that's going to take place led by our youth that's going to happen in this place May 28th. Now, if you've been with me, you understand back in November, I told you there was a seven-month window that we had going all the way through May. I wasn't sure exactly all that was going to happen after it. I just knew that we were moving into a seven-month season where there was going to be the activity and the preparation, the reset of the Lord, something that Isabel talked about. There was going to be this development process that was going to take place, and then suddenly everything we've been talking about is going to happen. What you experienced just a moment ago will become normal. And, and, and if you notice this morning, it wasn't contrived. It wasn't, it wasn't scripted. It was our hearts are saying, you, Lord, and we're giving ourselves to him. And we give him room to move. They're going to move. And, and so Sam gave us this word. It's a longer word talking about, and it's led by that group. 
who are laid down lovers, stop talking badly about the next generation because they're amazing. I'm telling you what, right now, they're going to lead us into a place that we've never been before. It's really, really good. And so why was 1970 important? At the same time, our spiritual father, Jack Taylor, is when a revival hit San Antonio, Castle Hills First Baptist Church, 3,000 people were saved in six months. The Holy Spirit moved, and it began with prayer. Why are we emphasizing prayer? It began with prayer, and specifically, it hit the youth. It hit the teenagers. And I've, I've, some of the guys that were in the middle of that, I've sat in the room and said, tell me what happened, because they're now in their 70s, 60s and 70s, and they were teenagers when that was taking place back at that point, or, and some of them were leadership. And he said, the Holy Spirit moved into our youth service so much that the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit our hearts going, oh my gosh, we've been infighting, we've been gossiping, we've been, I mean, there was not social media. I can't imagine how it would have been ramped up to the next level. But that was taking place, and all of a sudden the Lord gave them a love for one another. They began to reconcile together, and then suddenly the, the, the youth began to say, man, I've lied to my parents, I've done drugs, I've done all these different things. They went into the adult service and began to interrupt the adult service so they could find their parents and begin to weep and repent to their parents. The holiness of the Lord is moving in in our nation. But it begins here, and it begins in a youth, and I'm telling you right now, become childlike in your faith. It's time once again to come into the holiness of the Lord, and I just feel it. And the enemy has tried to oppose it. The enemy has tried to disrupt it, and he will not be successful. What Stephen has said is exactly right. It's time to stop mourning things that, that either has happened in the past or didn't happen the way we wanted to go and say, Lord, it's your agenda, and I'm right here with you. I'm all in on you and what you want to do here. Amen? Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to three passages of Scripture. We're going to move this through this pretty quickly. Clear there. James 1, mark it. Then Romans chapter 8, put a marker there. So James 1, Romans 8, and then Jeremiah 32. When you get to Jeremiah 32, keep it open there. One of the nice things about most Bibles is they have two little strings that you can mark. So... Mark James 1, Mark James, uh, oh, Romans 8, and then flip over to Jeremiah 32. Um, I'm really excited about the next two weeks after this. One of my brothers in, from Papa Jack, um, a guy named Dr. Alan Hawkins and his wife Gail are going to be with us next week and then the 22nd. And uh, Alan and Gail uh, pastored in Albuquerque, New Mexico for 40 years. Um, this connected with my, my spiritual family, Papa Jack, uh, when Alan... And Nancy retired. Uh, Alan does a lot of teaching with Global Awakening. He helps uh, Randy Clark's uh, doctoral thesis students walking through things. And, and uh, the Lord had really said, it's time to bring, uh, get back to the place where we were bringing a lot of different five-fold leaders to teach on a Sunday morning. And at the same time, they're going to be teaching uh, at my Sunday night school from the School for Kingdom Advancement as well. So it's going to be really, really good. Um, and I've, I've asked Alan to talk about the covenant, talk about communion, things like that. So they'll be with us the next couple of weeks. But I felt like I was supposed to start a series, and it will really, what they'll teach will help be a part of this. But talk about keys to expansion. Let me hear you say keys to expansion. And what we're going to be focusing in on is prayer, the word, worship, and what that means for us individually. So how do we connect? How are keys that God's given us through prayer to expand, 
through worship to expand, and then specifically the, the Word of God and how those are keys to expansion everywhere we go. And, and a lot of times when we talk in a revival-minded church, it, you can use lots of uh, ethereal or theoretical stuff. It's like 60,000-foot view. What I really want you to be able to do is take these tools and say, but what does it mean for me today? What does it mean for my marriage? What does it mean for me raising kids? What does it mean for my work? Everywhere that I have a tangible impact, and it's like Joshua was told, uh, be strong and courageous for you'll lead people to possess the promised land. But the key to that was is it was individual families that had to possess the promised land. Joshua could lead them in and point them to where to go. But it had to be the family of God that had to come in and actually possess the land because Joshua could not take Jericho by himself. Amen? So this is about us learning how do we take our city and there's keys to expansion. So today I want to talk to you about uh, prayer positions, the position of prayer. In Matthew 7, 7 through 8, it says this, Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone, let me hear you say everyone. So there's no disqualification. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be open. The key to prayer is this, not the answer, but the one who actually responds. Who are you asking And what is his response to you? When you're knocking on the door and he opens up, it's more important for prayer to be able to find the one that you're seeking, not the answer to your prayer. Does that make sense? Now, he's going to give you something. And when we position our heart where I'm saying, I might be praying for this, but I am open to he gives me something else. He answers my prayers differently, but I'm praying according to the understanding or the knowledge or the wisdom or where I'm at now, but I'm willing to, when he opens the door and says, that's good, but let me give you this, I'm willing to say, yes, that was the better thing. I have to position my heart in this, but the key is we have to be asking. We have to be knocking. We have to be seeking in order to be able to see what's going to be released. Let me give you just a shotgun of some other scriptures. Uh, you can go back later on and listen if you want these addresses. But just talking about prayer, how important prayer is. Uh, John eleven twenty two. I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Psalm 2, 8. Ask me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Jeremiah 33.3 Ask me, and I will tell you remarkable secrets you do not know about things to come. Colossians 1.9 We do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Ephesians 6.18 And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Luke 18.1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Another translation says, and not be discouraged. Isaiah 56.7, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Let me hear you say for all nations. We've made it only for our nation. Just saying. I love America. But he wants the nations. 
He wants the peoples of the nations. And so the house of God becomes a house of prayer for the nations to know him. Does that make sense? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 12, 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Without ceasing, what does that mean? Don't stop. What does a prayer look like? It's not just the quiet time. It's not just the prayer of books. I mean, the book of prayers. It's, it's not just you repeating something. It's not just spontaneous prayer. Every part of your life you can turn into worship, into prayer. Every aspect of your life. Thank you, Lord, as I'm walking into the grocery store today, I bless it in Jesus' name. That's praying without ceasing. It's not going 24 hours, seven days a week going da 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 At some point, you're going to have to take a breath and you're going to have to sleep. You're going to have to eat. You're going to have to, your vocal cords can't go like that. What it's saying is the position and the posture of your heart is in a continuous motion aim towards him, of asking him for his kingdom to come, his will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. I'm being positioned to expand his kingdom, not my own. Papa Jack in his prayer book on prayer said this, no believer's spiritual life will ever rise to stay above the level of his or her praying. No believer's spiritual life will ever rise to stay above the level of his or her praying. This is why you can have a mountain time of ex- type experience and then wonder why am I back in the valley? It might be the level of your prayer life. Prayer sustains the mountaintop. So even when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, Stephen just read it earlier, Psalm 23 says, oh, even I'm here, I'm with you. There's another psalm that talks about, I could go to the heights and you'd be there. I could go to the depths of hell and you'd be there. Where could I go away from your presence? Prayer connects you in a continual state of relationship with him. I want to read Luke 18.1 again. Now Jesus was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not become discouraged. What that tells us is discouragement will come at you. It doesn't mean you have to receive it. We have to position there's something about prayer. Where as much as we have a level of understanding about what we think God's agenda is and his will is, that there's going to be a certain level where no eye is seen and no ear is heard, no mind is comprehended the things yet that he wants to do. And so I have to be okay in this place of going, I've prayed for people to be made well, and they haven't been made well, and it was easy to become discouraged. But instead I go, wait a minute, no, Lord, you always heal, and there's something that you're doing, and I don't have to make up a list of excuses or reasons why it didn't happen right here. All I've got to do is pray without ceasing. Continue to come back into this place and say, until I see the breakthrough, I'm going to continue to seek your will, your heart, your, not, your knowledge, what you're wanting to release in the earth. And so we have to pray without ceasing. Why do we not pray? There's probably a thousand different reasons, but let me give you four main, main categories. Ignorance. I'm going to say ignorance. At some point, you grow up in your faith, and you may be ignorant. It's not willful is what I'm, my point in saying. You may not be fully aware or understand the importance of prayer, how to pray, why to pray. This is why I'm teaching you now. But it is an important where we may not know how to pray, and it's not from willfulness. It's from ignorance. But there's always this invitation to step into understanding. Number two would be complacency. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. 
I've got things going on in my life. It's the, the trials of life. It's the busyness of life. And I just become complacent in, in that place of prayer. And the beauty of Jesus is this, the moment that you repent. Remember, repentance has changed the way you think. You step right back into the place from complacency into activity. It takes a breath. It takes a moment and tension to the heart. Jesus does not make you jump through a thousand hoops that you've got to go through. I grew up in a tradition that says when you went to confession, you'd have to go and pray this list of prayers this many times, and then you would be restored. There, there can be times for that, but my point is this. The moment your heart turns back to him, just move out of complacency and move into expectancy. Number three, we don't pray because of unbelief. This is the one that a lot of times is a little bit hidden because we're in a, we're in a church of faith, we're in an atmosphere of faith, We have some levels of expectation that God still heals, he still moves, and then yet we enter into this place where can he really do that? And so I don't necessarily pray for it because I have an unbelief that he would actually do it or I have an unbelief that he actually wants to. And it's in this point where Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there's this father who had brought his son, who had been demon-possessed, to the disciples that were still down there. There were still nine guys that were down there to do ministry, and they could not get rid of this demon. And the father walks up to Jesus and says, your followers couldn't do this, but there's something about you. And Jesus talks to him about belief. Do you believe? And what was the man's response? Help me in my unbelief. Notice the key on this was, don't wait till you believe to pray. Go directly to him and say, help me in my unbelief, but I know the thing, the answer, the key to this is that if I pray to you, if I ask, you're going to do something, even if I don't believe it yet or I don't understand it yet. And so step into a place of connectivity so you can believe with him. Because your reality, you're taking on the belief system of Jesus, not your beliefs. And finally, the last thing would be discouragement. You've prayed for somebody, it didn't happen. And it causes you to move into a place of discouragement. And what I'm telling you is you have to be encouraged. Pour courage back inside of you. Move out of a place of discouragement. Become re-encouraged and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to move you and say, it didn't happen then, but what if it happens today? The woman who had the issue of blood for a number of years is a fantastic example. For how many years? 12, 13 years. She had this issue. She'd done everything she knew to do. Everything the Jews told her to do, all the prayers, and all she does is like, man, what if she had become discouraged and not saw, there's Jesus, if I just go him of his garment, but eh, maybe it doesn't happen this time. What I'm telling you is you have to continue to press in. We were watching The Chosen, and, and there's the, uh, the scene where the, the, the lame man who's healed at the pool of Bethesda, and I love the way that The Chosen did it. Let me just say this real quick. The Chosen is not the Bible. Can we all agree? All right? There's been some weirdness out there talking about it. it, it but it, it is actually given the story Jesus presented really, really well. And, and it shows this man's life of years and years of discouragement because he's literally feet away from this pool. And he, he knows if he can just climb in there, there might be a chance. But, man, the moment the water stirred up, everybody's in the water before he can even get there. And he's like, finally, he's just so discouraged, he gives up. And then Jesus walks into it and goes, ah, you've been here the longest. Let me heal you. What I'm telling you is we have time for us to move out of the place of discouragement into a place of expectancy. Let me hear you say expectancy. So open your Bibles to Jeremiah 32. I remember years ago when we began to move into the kingdom, Robert Morris at Gateway, was a, was an, he is a fantastic Bible teacher. 
and, and really helped shape and form a lot of my early understanding of theology. And I remember this message he taught on prayer one time, and he pointed to Jeremiah 32. And I just want to bring this to you because this is going to talk about why do we pray. And, and at first glance, you're going to look at this and go, this has to do with prayer. How does this have to do with prayer? Just be, bear with me. So verse 6, it says this, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Ananoth, for the right of redemption. Let me hear you say the right of redemption. That's going to be a key. The right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Ananoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance. Let me hear you say the right of inheritance. So we have the right of redemption and the right of inheritance. The right of inheritance is yours. And the redemption, I'm sorry, and the, da, 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 and the redemption yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver, assigned the deed. Let me hear you say deed. So there's, there's something about a legal document. The deed and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So it's a legal, um, a, a legal transaction. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and the custom, and to that which is open. Let me hear you say sealed and open. So basically, it's the same deed, but two were signed. One, an open deed would be like whenever you sell a car and you have the title deed to your car and you have to sign it in order to be able to transfer it to somebody else for them to take ownership of it, that would be the open deed. But then there was this other deed that says Jeremiah's original purchase of this is sealed up so nobody can contest his right of inheritance, Okay or his right of, of redeeming it and getting it back. What we do know here is this, is that more than likely what had happened is Jeremiah's father had passed away, and so his uncle, in order to be able to help the family, came and bought the land to help the family and bless the family. But Jeremiah had a first right of inheritance, okay? Follow this what's going on. But the, so the uncle is helping it, but he says it was always his, a right of inheritance, which allowed him to do a right of redemption. What did that mean? He had a right later on to buy the land back. It didn't matter if the uncle said, no, I have bought it. I want to keep it. I want to give it to my son. No, because Jeremiah had a right of redemption tied to his right of inheritance. He was able to say, no, that is mine. I'm exercising my right of redemption to inherit the land that was always supposed to be mine because now I have the money to do it. And what I want you to understand is this, that Jesus the Son came because Adam was given a right, a deed, take dominion over all the earth. God gave them an inheritance and gave them a title deed to the planet, take dominion, rule and reign, multiply, but Adam and Eve lost their title deed to the planet. And the, most, the next most powerful being on the planet, which was Satan, came and took that title deed. This is why when uh, Jesus is being tempted by Satan, he says to Jesus, uh, if you'll just worship me, all the kingdoms that you see, the kingdoms of the earth are mine. I'll give them to you if you just worship me. And I used to hear Bible teachers say, well, see, that was a lie. No, no, no. He had legal right to the land because Adam had given up. He had, he had uh, uh, 
basically given up legal authority to his land. He forfeited. That's the word I'm looking for. He forfeited his right. And so now what happens? Jesus comes back and says this. Now I am the son and I have the right of inheritance and the right of redemption. And I'm paying a price on Calvary that's going to redeem what was lost. And now I'm redeeming it now. And now there's a title deed in heaven that has your name on it if you've become born again because of what Jesus has done. This is why we say wherever you step foot is a territory God has given you. The earth is not the devil's. The earth is ours because it was given to us by inheritance through Jesus our Father. We were given an authority. We were given an assignment in the main. What does prayer do? You're asserting your right of inheritance. You're asserting your right to redeem things. When we're going, when we're, we're taking our time because we've been praying and getting wisdom and strategy from the Lord about what we were going to do with our property. And one of the things the Lord said was, is don't feel like you have to rush out there yet and just start putting stakes and oil and stuff like that. Get into with me, with the team, the leadership team. I'm going to give you some wisdom so that when you step onto it, you can redeem and cleanse the land. So we're in the process of doing that right now. But there's something about when we walk onto that land, we have legal authority. I have a title deed that says Legacy Church owns this land. And now as we're stepping into it, we're going to go, well, where in the past did the enemy have a place of authority? Did he do this? Did he do that? What does it look like? And we're going to redeem the land. We've already redeemed this land, and we just leased this property. But when you step onto this property, I want you to understand this. Do you experience the presence of God? Can you imagine over the history, there's been some non-kingdom things that have been done on this property. There's non-kingdom things that happen all the time because of the transient traffic that walks back and forth. But guess what? They step onto this territory. We have a title deed that says, no, when you step foot on this territory, we've already redeemed this land. Even after we leave this place, it, we, we've redeemed this land. And I'm telling you what, our landlord has been blessed. His business has been blessed because we've been here redeeming the land. That's what prayer does. So now, why should you pray? You've been given an inheritance through Jesus. What family issues do you have? What things are still showing up? What family generational curses might be there or it's causing issues in marriage, family, whatever it may be. It's time to realize that through Jesus, you have the right of redemption. And in prayer, you begin to redeem the things that have actually been under the sway of the enemy. And so the Lord, as it is in heaven, can bring it to you. So let's take the open deed that we have and use it through prayer. So let me give you three positions of prayer. Number one, position. Position of your identity. Let me hear you say identity. The position of rightful access. How can we stand before a holy God and pray? Our right standing before God comes through one thing, the blood of Jesus. The cross purchased for us the ability to meet with God. His son, Jesus Christ, left heaven to become a baby and grow up with all the pressures and temptations of humanity. He encountered all the feelings, all the abuse, all the limitations of humanity so that he could fully relate to us and deliver us from all evil. So we have to come into this place now, not as ones who were identified by the fall, but now we are marked by the, we're identified by the resurrection. I'm marked by the, let me hear you say resurrection. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right. Let me hear you say the right. This is legal authority. The right to become children of God. They are reborn. 
Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. The next time the devil actually comes at you and says, are you really saved? You just remind him, my salvation didn't come from me, it didn't come from you, it came from God. Get away from me. How dare you actually accuse me about my salvation? I didn't make it happen, God made it happen, so get out of here. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. I had you turn that in, I want you to go and open that real quick. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you've not received the Spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. So now we call Him Abba Father for His Spirit. Let me hear you say His Spirit. Joins with my Spirit. Go ahead and say it with me. Joins with my Spirit. To affirm that I am God's child. You need to turn this into a declaration. What this tells me is this. Whatever spirit you join your spirit to will affirm your identity. Whatever spirit you join your spirit with will affirm your identity. It will inform the way you think. It will inform what you think is possible. It will inform your identity. And so you have to make sure. I told you uh, several times we've been talking about the plumb line of the spirit the Holy Spirit is the plumb line by which we step into rightful inheritance with God. So whatever spirit you allow to join with your spirit will affirm your identity. You can operate like an orphan, a sense of abandonment, loneliness, alienation, or isolation. But we have to step into this place of sonship. And let me give you three. I've talked about it before, but I feel like it's one of these things we have to really come into and press into these three areas. Sonship. Let me hear you say sonship. Bride. And friendship. Let me give you the overview. A son has access to all his father's resources. He has the responsibility to do business in his father's name and pass it on to future generations. But the key to sonship is you're being trained as a youth to handle the family business. Sonship is about inheritance, but more than important about inheritance, it's about learning obedience so you can steward an inheritance. That's why sons are given this this place of like, let me teach you up and train you up. Read through Proverbs. How many times did Solomon say, my father told me, my son, if you'll just listen to me, if you'll listen, let me train you up. There's that verse that says, train a child up in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. This is what we're talking about. And so we have to step into this place, position myself as a child, as a son who has rightful inheritance from God, but in my prayer life, I learn obedience. It, learned, it teaches my heart to submit my will to his will as I pray as a child. Because I'm saying, not my will, but your will be done. It's an important key. The second one is bride. A bride has access to her husband's resources through covenant and intimacy. And it comes in this one-on-one -on -one as they become one with him. It's revelation of the heart and the will of her husband. So how do I position myself as a bride that says, I'm not inheriting something as a bride. I'm married to the one who owns it all. And as I become one with him, I learn in this place of covenant and intimacy to actually be able to be provided for and to rest. The bride of Christ should learn how to rest in the provision of Christ. In every way that's possible, the, the bridegroom, Jesus, the, the, the groom, he provides well for his people and for his bride. 
And so how in this position of prayer can I come to this place and begin to learn and understand the importance of oneness, the importance of trust in his heart in all things? And then more importantly, I'm going to move into this place like Esther did where I can move the heart of an unrighteous king in order to be able to bring out the will of the righteous one. Amen? Third one is this, a friend. A friend has access to their friend's resources to do business on the behalf of the friend. But this is developed, listen to this, through father and is trained up and learns how to inherit things and steward things. You want to become a friend of God? Learn how to be a bride who just gets into his presence, listens to his heart, learns to trust his heart, learns this, I don't have to strive, I don't have to earn for any of this stuff. I've been provided for. I can just rest. I've been protected. I would propose to you that Psalm 23 was actually more appropriately written to a bride. I don't matter if we're going through the valley of shadow of death. It doesn't matter if we're going to this place. Man, I get to sit at a wedding feast. What's the context and revelation of the table that's put before the enemies of the Lord? It's, the, it's a wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a marriage feast. So when I learn in prayer how to do that, then I can move into this place of friendship. I so know the heart of God that of course I know what he wants to take place. I can take resources that he puts in my hands, and now I move, he moves into a place where he says, all the things that I know, now I'm going to let you know because you can handle it. It won't overwhelm you. It won't stress you out. You can take resources. You won't use it for yourself. You'll actually use it for what I'm trying to build because you've learned how to take what he's provided for you and be content in all things so that you can handle overflow. Amen? Number two, position of your attitude. The position of your attitude, it requires heart humility. You're so convinced of his power, it's the fear of the Lord. It's what we experienced part of the way through worship. He moved into the room, and it was very clear. He, he's good, he's loving, he's all those things, but he's in charge. He's going to do what he wants to do. You know why he can move into this place? Because he's actually given us um, permission to either push back his will as it is in heaven to stay in heaven or to receive it here on the earth as it is in, in heaven and release it. And so as we began to praise, we began to worship him, as we began to cry out, he goes, hey, I can actually walk into the room and begin to release a level of holiness that you couldn't have handled outside of this. So you have to position your heart to be humble. John Bevere says this, the fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of God and what he will do to me. It's when I'm afraid to be away from him. I'll read that again. The fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of God and what he will do to me. It's when I'm afraid to be away from him. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. But let me say this. We should actually be fearful of walking away from his presence. Because the moment you walk away from his presence, you find yourself where Adam and Eve did, which was separated from him, trying to figure out life on their own. And that's where you were at when he saved you. Who wants to go back to that mess? No. So in this place of the fear of the Lord positions you to be bold. The fear of the Lord positions you actually to go boldly into the throne room and actually say, God, you said it, you want to do it, I'm going to pray with expectancy. Sometimes we use this thing about bold people must be uh, prideful people. I'm like, no, 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 no. Look at the fruit of life. That's telling you what pride looks like. 
What I'm telling you is right now, a bold heart comes from the place of humility because I realize this is not mine. I didn't do any of this stuff, but I inherited it. He's given it to me. This was what I was born for. Psalm 111, 1 through 10 says this, Praise the Lord, and I will thank the Lord with all my heart as I meet with his godly people. How amazing are the deeds of the Lord. All who delight in him should ponder them. Everything he does reveals his glory and majesty. His righteousness never fails. He causes us to remember his wonderful works. How gracious and merciful is our Lord. He gives food to those who fear him. He remembers his covenant always. I'm going to say that again. Some of us need to hear that again. He always remembers his covenant. Verse 6, he has shown his great power to his people by giving them the lands of others. They're trustworthy. They are forever true to be obeyed faithfully with integrity. He has paid a full ransom for his people. He has guaranteed his covenant with them forever. What a holy, awe-inspiring name he has. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commandments will grow in wisdom. Praise him forever. Psalm 1-7 in the Amplified says this, The reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord is the beginning and the principle and the choice part of knowledge. It's starting point and it's its essence. But fools despise skillful and godly wisdom, instruction, and discipline. Proverbs 19-23 in the Amplified, The reverent, worshipful fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who asks, has it rests satisfied he cannot be visited with actual evil what it means this is when the devil comes knocking on your door and he's wanting you to open up when you rest in his holiness you don't have to open the door the enemy's going to visit you you can reject him say no 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 vacancy right isaiah 33 6 and that day he will be be your sure foundation providing a rich storehouse the salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of the Lord will be your treasure. So position your heart humbly. The final position is the position of your authority in prayers. Be bold. It's not the opposite of humility. It's not presumptuous to make requests of the Lord. It's not presumptuous to enter boldly into the throne room if you're a son or daughter. In fact, a son knows their authority as a son of God. They also know their authority to do business in their father's name. So we do not beg illness to go away. It's not the will of the father for illness to run rampant in his kids' lives. So when we come, we're saying, no, no more. No more cancer, no more COVID, no more heart issues. None of this stuff is allowed to stay. And you say, well, what happens when I pray and it doesn't go away? You keep going back to him and saying, but no, you said and I know. This is illegal. This is, I've got to be bold. Don't stop being bold. James 1, 5 through 8 says this, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God. He'll give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Listen to this. Do not waver. That Greek word is diakrino. It means do not doubt. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And they're unstable in everything 
that they do. And this, that Greek word is this back and forth, tossing of the waves. And what I'm telling you is it's time to settle in your heart. Do not waver in who God is. If you can know the fear of the Lord, it will help you step into a place of boldness because I do not doubt his ability or his willingness. So why would I doubt in the time of testing? Why would I doubt in the moment when I pray and the thing doesn't go away? Why would I suddenly doubt what Jesus did on Calvary? We have to become boldly. We have to set back and go, no, I will set my face like a flint. I will not turn away from what I know to be true about his goodness, his capacity, and his willingness. And it's going to take that type of boldness to see our nation turned around. It will take that type of boldness to see the nations of the world turn around because there will be days of testing that are going to come about. And you have to be like Peter, who in one moment is doubting Jesus and saying, no, 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 I don't even know the son of a gun. Go read the gospel account. He goes, I don't know the bleepity bleep. That's what it says in the gospel. He was a fisherman. He cursed. And he goes from that place to after the resurrection, he meets Jesus and he knows finally he is the one I always believed he to be. And Jesus restores him back to a place of God confidence, not self-confidence. And on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, suddenly Peter is not the man who puts his foot in his mouth, but he's the one who puts his foot up the devil's backside. Come on. This, this, is, the, this is the gospel. This is the Bible. He's looking for you to really believe that. For your family, for our city, for our nations, and for one another. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet we're tempted, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me give you two more passages and we're going to pray. Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He also says something that still messes my theology up, and I don't have it figured out yet. This will be real transparent. And whatever sins you hold on to, they will not be forgiven. But whatever sins you forgive, they'll be forgiven. I'm still figuring that out. What I'm telling you is right now, I think there's a position of our heart where we could keep people out of heaven. And here's why. If I refuse to forgive somebody, I will never have compassion to share the gospel with them. I'll never pray for their salvation. Why? Because I'm holding on to their sin even when Jesus didn't. I'm not saying you could literally keep somebody out. If they confess Jesus as Lord, they could do it despite your stubbornness. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is maybe you were called to be a representation of the grace and mercy of God to somebody, but you're holding on to this unforgiveness because of the stubbornness of your heart. You're actually not going to be the person that God sent you to be to them. And it might actually push them further into why do I want your Jesus? 
you're a jerk. Just saying. What was the position we started with? We have to come back to this place of his goodness. We have to come back to this place of our identity. A son will never hold the, forget the sins against his enemy. You know why I know that to be true? Because the son, Jesus, doesn't. He doesn't hold your sins against you. Friends of God, they'll bring the good news. So why don't you stand up with me? And that's a question that deserves being answered too, by the way, brother. I'm going to read this verse and I'm going to pray for us. John 16, 23 and 24 says this. And on that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've had to ask for nothing in my name. And ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Maybe this is the day that you finally believe. And instead of bringing questions to God, do you want to? Are you capable? What's your willingness about that situation? You just come to him boldly and say, Father, I want to see restoration in my marriage. Father, I want to see that prodigal child come back home. Father, this unbelief I've been dealing with for a long time, I just want to see you. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come into this room and this asks this question right where you're standing. Holy Spirit, what are you saying personally to me today? Just take a moment and listen. Holy Spirit, we started this day with worship. We just acknowledge you as Lord of all. You're the king, we're not. Would you train us as your children on how to steward the inheritance you're giving us? And especially in this area called prayer. Lord, we thank you that when we received you, we became one with you as a bride. Would you just move us into this place of learning how to trust you, that you've already provided for it, we don't have to strive for it, and that we would grow in an understanding of what it means just to be one with you and rest. So that, Father, we can move into the place of friendship, where all the desires of the Father's heart are made known to us so that we can actually carry the desires of your heart, Father, into the nations. And let it first begin in our hearts, our family, our children, 
let our homes be transformed first. And we just thank you for what you're doing. And we declare this in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people say, amen. Thank you so much for joining us as we seek first after God's kingdom and release it to transform lives and cities. If you would like more information about how to grow in the kingdom or connect with Legacy, go to our website, www.legacynb.com.